you're going to drown like that. I'm standing there on my tiptoes, holding a tarp above our tent, trying to stay balanced while Solomon ties the rope above. A guy says again, you're going to drown like that. I've been camping here a million times. That's never going to work. Let me show you. He stands up. He's muscled, covered in tattoos, wearing just a pair of shorts and a baseball cap. He walks over, stops in his truck, pulls out a power drill, comes at our camp, starts drilling anchors into the trees around our tent, all the while explaining to Solomon the right way to hang a tarp. So it drips this way so the rain goes away from your tent so you don't get wet. We thanked him for his help and advice, introduced ourselves, and then went back to unpacking the car. The storm was supposed to be coming any minute. He walked away, and then a few minutes later came back. Solomon? You said your name was? What culture is that name from? What, what's your background? I started to feel uneasy. Why the questions? Why the curiosity? Solomon put down what he was carrying and went over to talk to him. And then Solomon called back, Honey, we're Ashkenazi, right? <laughs> I'm thinking this is the last conversation I want to be having. I just want to be another anonymous camper. But he kept coming over kept making comments, kept noticing how we were doing things. Oh, must be the Jewish in you. Every time he said it, the Jewish in you, just the hairs on the backs of my arms would start to raise, and I'm starting to wonder if this is a good plan. Should we maybe think about going down to the camp office? Maybe they have another site we could rent. Is this safe? I just feel like there are some things you just don't say. I don't like him. But Solomon insists he's a good guy. A little rough around the edges, but he's nice. He's trying to help us. He's probably never met a Jew before. I'm thinking, in Boston, he's never met a Jew before? <laughs> Solomon says his name is Jeff. He's a good guy. Quite a character. Jeff came by our campsite all the time. He wanted to know if we brought portable chargers, if we brought ingredients for s'mores. Every time he came over, he came up with another way he could help us, something else he could do for us. You guys, I just want you to know my truck's right there. I always leave it on. It's just on, and I got every, card, every cord you'd ever need to charge anything. So if you need to charge any batteries or anything, just climb in my truck and charge it. I, anything for you, bud. He came by. I was very distraught that we had not brought ingredients for s'mores. Come on over to my tent, guys. After dinner, we'll just do s'mores together. He wanted to introduce us to his son. He was going in to get ice. Do we need anything from town? He could pick anything up, anything we need. Don't use that wood they sell you in the camp store. We've got real wood here. This stuff really burns well. He wanted to give us access to the best part of the beach from his campsite dinner if we needed it. After we finished unpacking, we realized we had forgot something in town, so we went over to see if we could get anything for him, at which point he hands us a $100 bill and says, get something nice for yourselves. I started to warm to him. It's hard not to. 
He was relentlessly kind and generous and thoughtful and full of offers of support and questions. He wanted to know what it meant to be Jewish. What did we actually believe? What do we eat? What is this kosher thing? Especially, what makes a beer kosher? <laughs> he really wanted us to uh, be able to come over and have a beer with him at his campsite. Please don't report us. You're not supposed to drink at these campsites. Uh, <laughs> I realized over the course of that day that I had really misjudged him. I saw his tattoos and his hat and his truck. And my own fears, my own worries about anti-Semitism, my own concerns about our safety when we travel clouded my vision. I saw what he was wearing, what he was driving, where he was coming from, but I didn't see him. I saw white supremacists in the newspaper. I saw inappropriate comments. I didn't see him. That night, we went over for s'mores at Jeff's campsite. He had a whole array of marshmallows, including vegan marshmallows, which they sell at Walmart. Who knew? And uh, as we were sitting there around the fire toasting marshmallows, Jeff told us about his life. When he was 11, his mom kicked him out of the house. She'd started dating this guy, and he didn't want to have kids around. That was it. He ended up in a group home, which was the opposite of a supportive, nourishing environment. The other kids that were there were always getting into trouble and invited him to join them. At 16, they invited him to uh, participate in an armed robbery. The way he tells it, he wasn't holding any weapons, he wasn't doing anything, he was just there with his friends. But they were arrested, and in court he was tried as an adult and sent to prison at 16. Jeff became a man in prison. He learned all about the world and about himself. He learned if you want to get something done, you have to be relentless about it. You've got to go for it. Whatever you want, you go for your dreams. He got out at 20 and discovered how hard it can be to re-enter society with a criminal record. Every time he'd go to apply for a job or fill out an application, he had to check the box. Have you ever been convicted of a crime? Have you ever spent time in jail or in prison? And once he checked that box, which he was required to do by law, the potential employer would explain why they could not hire him. Oh, you know, actually, I, I forgot we actually already filled this position yesterday. You know, we're looking for someone who has a a little more experience. Actually, we're looking for someone who can do X or Y or Z. It was demoralizing, sometimes humiliating. I never saw him, 
They never saw what he could bring to the table. All they saw was that one box, that one stupid mistake that he made when he was a stupid teenager. Even his friends. He shared the story. One night he went to a party. They were all hanging out. And across the room he saw this beautiful woman open the door. And he knew in that moment he wanted to marry her. He was going to marry her. She was the love of his life. Only problem was they hadn't met yet. So he asked his friends to introduce him. And his friends march him across the room and they say, Hey, this is my buddy Jeff. He just got out of prison. (laughs) And his heart sunk. A few days later, Jeff's wife, Marissa, came with their adorable 20-month-old daughter, Peyton. I asked them my favorite question. When did you know you wanted to spend your lives together? Jeff talked about that party. About how excited he was when she opened that door and he saw her, how he knew, this is the woman I want to spend the rest of my life with. And about that moment when his friends introduced him as the guy who just got out of prison, when he thought it was all over, his stomach sank, he felt hopeless. But Marissa didn't care. She just looked at him and saw him. She saw him and she loved him. And they've been together ever since. The way Marissa reacted to him, that was special. The way she saw him, that was special. The more time I spent with Jeff, the more I heard him talk about his life. The more it became clear that's not normally what he encounters. Most often people react to him the way I do, the way I did. They write him off. They see that box on the form or they find out about his criminal record and they push him away. They see him working construction. They figure that's all he's good for. They don't give him the time of day. They don't enter into a conversation. But rather than be bitter or angry about that, rather than resent the people around him for constantly and consistently failing to acknowledge his humanity, Jeff's made it his mission in life to be relentlessly positive, kind, generous, and thoughtful. That's his life strategy. This past week, we celebrated the start of Elul. Elul is a month of preparation before the high holidays. The month in which we do our work of tshuva, of return and repair. We're taught that we should go back and ask for forgiveness to any people we have wronged. We're taught that we should focus on our behaviors on our patterns, on anything that keeps us small, that keeps us from becoming the best we can be. This is the month to do that work. This is the month to do that repair. 
This is the month to set goals. There's a piece of work we hardly ever talk about in Elul. It's easy to ask for forgiveness. It's easy to say, I did something wrong. Please forgive me. Don't see me as that jerk who just cut you off. Please don't see me as the woman who failed to remember her promise. Sorry, I didn't mean to. See me for who I am. I'm not that worst moment. I'm better than that. I'm a person who cares about you, who just had a bad day. Please see me in all that I am. We have no problem asking for forgiveness. We've been trained to forgive. But have we learned how to be forgiving? Have we learned to look at every single person in this world and to focus on the decency they embody? To get to know them, to see past our first impressions? To see them? We camped for about 10 days. At the end of those 10 days, we were packing up and everybody was helping each other and pulling down tarps and canopies and tents. And after all our stuff was packed away in our cars, we got together for one last picture. Climbed in the car, started driving. About two hours later, Solomon got a text on his phone from Jeff. Did you make it home okay, bud? Time for all of us to come home. Time for us to come back to who we really are and all that we are meant to be. It's not enough to just forgive or ask for forgiveness. We need to be forgiving. We're better than our worst moments. Everyone is.